At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Newish. Everything's changed. Have you? Where we're celebrating that in Christ, we have been given new life. The only question is, are you living it? Let's turn to Romans chapters 5 through 7 to decipher whether we're living in Christ's freedom or trapped in the patterns of our old life. She said about what God did in her life. I love the power of story that it was while she was listening to and watching other people profess Christ that God was drawing her to herself, to himself, as he does. And she used a powerful phrase that God was calling me. And I love that she responded to God's call. Man, that's my prayer every week in this room, that we would have faith like a child, that even as we are followers of Jesus, every Sunday as the word of God is taught or preached from this room, that when we feel God calling us, to confess our sin, to walk in obedience, that we walk with faith and obedience rather than sloughing it off and moving forward with life. I just love uh, hearing people's stories when their lives have been changed and now they want to tell you about it through baptism. Pretty powerful to see and experience. Well, if you want to turn today to uh, Romans chapter 7, we're actually going to be finishing up our series on uh, Romans, Romans 6 and 7 uh, where it was new-ish, and actually uh, our, our series was called New-ish, Everything's Changed, Have You? And hopefully over the process of the last number of weeks, you have made some changes. God has called you in some different directions, and then we're going to take a little bit of a pause and then begin into Romans 8 in a new series. And, and I, I just want to tell you today, just to give you a heads up as we're walking through Romans 7, and we're going to finish out the chapter, uh, chapter 7, uh, there's going to be a little bit more teaching necessarily than preaching. There is a difference, and this is somewhat of a confusing passage in some ways, and people try to get some nuances to it and land the plane, but I want to be super practical for us today, and so some of it might be a little bit more teaching, helping you understand what God is saying through the Apostle Paul at the end of chapter 7 as we look at it. And I just want you to be encouraged, hopefully, that when you leave today, you're encouraged, because, man, I bet you there's people under the sound of my voice, whether on line or here that wrestle with sin. Anybody? Cool. All the rest of you that didn't raise your hand, please help the rest of us. I hope you're encouraged as you leave that even the Apostle Paul confesses, and we're going to look at the chapter in the chapter 7, where he says, man, I want to do what's right, but man, sin sometimes is winning. You feel that way ever? I'll tell you what, in the world that we're living in today, and I'm sure the world he was living in is just the same, that men, day in and day out, there's things that I want to do as a follower of Jesus. There's ways with which I want to walk, but yet I fail. Man, I want you to leave here with hope that your pastor is a failure. <laughs> That's okay, because I'm a human just like you. The Apostle Paul, maybe the greatest follower of Jesus besides Jesus, was a failure. He struggled. He wrestled. And maybe if you're here under the sound of my voice or online and you are not a believer, but you've wrestled your whole life to try to follow all of these lists of rules to make God happy, and for some reason you're just not good at following rules, I want to give you hope today. Because none of us are good at following rules, and God never intended us to follow rules to make him happy. It's quite the opposite. 
So we're going to be in chapter 7, verse 7 today, and I just want to answer two questions actually that the Apostle Paul puts forward, and that is, is the law sinful, and is the law death? And we'll start with the first one, is the law sinful? And I just want to put it out there, when I'm talking about the law, and the Apostle Paul is talking about the law here, he's talking about the law, the Old Testament the, the Ten Commandments and the other law that was given to the people of Israel. Is the law sinful and is the law death? So when you think about it, maybe the easiest way with which you can think about it is the Old Testament Ten Commandments. That's the, the law that was given when Moses went up on a mountain and got the Ten Commandments from God. Now, there was many other commandments, many other laws that he gave his people, but that will be helpful when you're thinking about our, our context here. So let's read it together in verse 7, the first number of verses. It says this, what then shall we say? That the law is sinful? By no means. Yet if it had, been, it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what, is, what it is to covet if the law did not say, you shall not covet. That's one of the commandments. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandments or commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And I'll just be honest with you, this whole text, it seems like Paul's going back and forth. Like the law is broken, it's sinful, and it's harsh, and it produces death. And then at the end, he ends there, and we'll come back to this in verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Paul is doing something here very specific in this text. He's writing in such a general way that you can find yourself in the text. Paul's describing this person in this text. He's describing the person that seeks salvation through some, Lord, some sort of code or law or creed or religion rather than faith in Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit. But within that description, he's placing it in such a way that categorically, he's writing about unbelievers. People have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus. But at the same time, uh, episodically descriptive of you and I, when we allow sin to reign in our bodies more than Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying there? So within this text, he's describing a category of people that have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus. At the same time, he's describing you and I when we live in such a way that we allow sin to reign in our bodies and live in sin rather than live to Christ. And I'll tell you, interpreters uh, over the years, and I will not fix it here in the time that we have, have wrestled about who is the Apostle Paul talking about when he says, I. Is he talking about Adam? Is he talking about Israel? Is he talking about Paul himself or someone else? And honestly, the reality is we see in different parts of the story, we could see Adam, we could see Israel, we could see Paul, and we could see every other person who has attempted to, to gain salvation by the means of some part of a law rather than Jesus. And so those in Rome, maybe God-fearers, do you know what a God-fearer was in the Bible? 
God-fearers were Gentiles who had a really high regard for Judaism, but maybe uh, they attended the synagogue and all the teachings without fully jumping in to become actually a Jew. And so, man, these were some of the first converts that came to know Christ from the disciples because they already had this basic description of biblical categories, and they knew all about it. So when the gospel was preached to them, they immediately were like, they were making connecting dots. So you can see as Paul writes this, he himself, in the description, he's talking about this struggle we have with sin and our inability to actually follow through before becoming Christians, which would have been very good for them. But then as Christians, they could see also the followers of Jesus in Rome themselves, especially they see themselves when they would give in to sin and give it the upper hand in their lives. And so he's writing to both of them that they might even see it as a call to walk with Jesus. And honestly, I've seen this in, in many people's lives. I've seen lots and lots of followers of Jesus. And I hope this is challenging to you when I say I see people even within our church context that live day in and day out with total absence of the power of the cross in the presence of the Spirit. They actually have more more to do with sin. They're, they're more comfortable talking about sin. They may come to church, and they actually resemble what we actually are reading here in Romans 7, 7 to 25. So categorically, yes, it's talking about unbelievers, but actually in a moment, in episodes of our lives, he's describing the way with which some of us, probably all of us in different seasons and times, actually live out the Christian walk that we're wrestling with sin and allowing it to reign in our lives. So is the law sinful. Let's get back to that. Well, look at what Paul says in verse 7. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. The apostle Paul has a high regard for the law. Paul gives this emphatic no. So why, we have to wrestle with, why in the world does he so closely associate the law with sin? He's even saying it at some points. So what is he getting at here? I want to explain it with an illustration, just to help you understand where he's at. So I actually just bought a house. We just slept the first time last night in our new home um, after a year. It was fantastic, right? But so say I buy a new home and I want to get a security system installed. And so I call, I make an appointment. I ask the company to come and install a security system. At the same time, the, the morning the technician is there, I feel really ill and I don't I don't want to go to the door. I don't know if I can help him. So I call my new neighbor, or maybe I don't know very well, and I ask him to go to the door and help the technician. And so he goes, and he comes over, and he helps, and he's going around the entire house, and he's learning the ins and the outs of our security system, maybe even the passcode, which gives him, man, the idea, the actual point of him coming over and helping him actually gives him the idea of robbing me. Because now he knows my security system. He knows everything And it sets up the ideal situation for him to rob me. He never would have had the thought otherwise if he wasn't there to help install my security system. This is what Paul is saying in this section. It seems confusing, but like the alarm system, he's saying God's law is actually good. On its own, it's great. It's actually fantastic. But if you introduce an error maybe an untrustworthy neighbor who you didn't know very well to help install it, then the system is going to work against you rather than for you. This is what he's saying. The same thing is when you introduce this untrustworthy thing, this error called sin, that's when it becomes a detriment to you. 
The alarm system makes it easier for the neighbor to rob me, just like the law makes it easier for sin to grow in you and actually deceive you day in and day out. Last week, my brother John was preaching, and he covered just before this verse 5 of chapter 7, and it says this, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. That's interesting. A very interesting phrase. Aroused by the law, what work in our members to bear fruit for death. I'll tell you what, that statement is provocative. That statement is fighting words to, to a Jew back then. Like, wait a minute, the law is arousing sin in me? That's not right. That can't be right. Because the Mosaic law for them would have been held in high regard. As the Apostle Paul, it would have been held in high regard with him. As it is with me in Woodside Bible Church, the law is held in high regard. So what is he saying here? Well, he takes literally the rest of chapter 7, what we're looking at today, to explain this conundrum of what he's trying to actually get at. That's why I say today is a little bit maybe even more teaching than preaching to help us understand what the Apostle Paul, but I promise you, for all of us, it will challenge each one of us. So look what he says back in verse 7. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means, we read this. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. You see, in previous chapters that we've looked at, the Apostle Paul helped us understand that sin is not just something that we do wrong. Sin is actually a power that controls us. The same power that came and entered the world when Adam and Eve tried to insert their independence from God and believe that they knew better than God. There's this power that now holds us captive many times, but it shouldn't. So sin it, it uses the law actually against us. And here's how. The Apostle Paul says it. Paul gives the example of the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, right? You shall not covet, he says. And as soon as he knew about the commandment, sin used it to produce in him all kinds of covetousness. Think about it for yourself. What would happen if immediately I say, don't think about a red fire truck? What are you thinking about now? A red fire truck, right? This is what happens. The same, ha same thing happens with God's commandment. Many times, the opposite happens. Many times we want to do what's right, or when we hear we can't do something, what does it make you do? You're walking down the road, you see wet paint, don't touch. What do you want to do? I'll tell you what I want to do. I want to put my whole hand on it. That's my brokenness. I mean, I went to a private school for five years to get a four-year degree. Why? Because they told me a lot of things I couldn't do, and I did them. And I got kicked out of Bible school twice. Why? because there was something broken in me. Because when someone tells you not to do something, immediately in your own soul and heart, your brokenness actually makes you want to do it. Did you hear what the Apostle Paul said? He says, man, if I didn't know covetousness was wrong, I wouldn't start doing it. But the law actually produced in me the knowledge of what's wrong, and then I was like, man, I want to do what's wrong. This is what he's saying. This is what he's trying to explain to all of us in a roundabout way. Because why? Because at the core it's not the law issue, it's a sin issue. It's our sin desire to insert our independence from God. Look what it says in verse 9. 
I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin, sin came alive. So it was like it almost brought alive in me sin, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. This is the thing. Man, it's one thing to have a knowledge or be mildly aware of your failings that, man, that most believers are, that they can't, that, they, that there's wrongdoings in their lives. It's one thing to be mildly aware of your wrongdoings. It's another thing to be faced with a commandment from God, all the while realizing you're powerless to change what Scripture is forbidding. It's crazy. And like, it's one thing to be like, yeah, I'm pretty messed up, and then have a commandment that says, don't do this, but you keep doing this because you don't have the power to overcome and do the thing that he's saying not to do. This is what he's getting at. He's saying, even though the promise, the commandment promises life, because, man, if we don't covet, if we don't couple people or things, but God alone, there, that's where we'll find life. At the same time, we're wrestling with the reality that through the law, we find death because we learn that what we really want to do is covet people and things and not God. It's this vicious cycle that he's getting at that we find, man, that the law has the power to shine the spotlight on our sin, and it leaves us with a problem. The problem is sin. It's not the law, which is why Paul is able to end the section with, so the law is holy, even though it caused problems, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So that's the first one. Is the law sinful? No, it's not. Let's keep going. Again, I'm not being real practical yet. We'll get there. Is, is death, is the law death? He gets to now in verse 13. Look with me. Did that which is good then bring death to me? This is what he's wrestling with. And he's portraying to the Roman church. By no means. It was sin producing in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So he says, man, is the law death? Did that which actually uh, supposed to bring me life, the law, that which is good, actually bring me death? Again, he answers, uh, by no means. And right after that, he gives us the answer. He says, it was sin. And, and here's where we find one of the key, although counterintuitive, purposes of the law. And I don't know if many of us realize this. That's why I said we're going to be a little bit more teaching today. Do you understand that the Old Testament law, one of the pro preeminent reasons for the law in the Old Testament was not to get people to follow a bunch of rules? Did you know that? That the preeminent reason for the Old Testament law was to show people that they couldn't follow the law and that they needed a Savior. You realize that? Yeah, it, it, there's a reason why there's a sacrificial system because no one could actually follow the law. And he's saying there that it was there, the good purposes of God was to shine a light on the fact that we can't follow the law, that there's no one on earth before, now, and in the future that is able to walk perfectly except Jesus. That's why what's beautiful about the gospel is that we get his life because we couldn't live ours. We get his death, but we also get his perfect life because he could follow the law 
perfectly. And what the law does is it shows the people of Israel to long for a future Savior, and it shows us that we are unable to keep it, therefore we need a Savior. It's beautiful. At the end of the day, it's not death. It's actually quite the opposite. It's actually life. He says that sin might be shown to be sin and might become sinful beyond measure. The law was given that it might shine a light on our brokenness and sinfulness. Man, this is why so many times people tell me or they're thinking in their own mind and if they were honest, they would wrestle with it and they would share it, that, man, I don't know if I could come to Jesus. I can't become a Christian because I'm not good enough. And if anybody ever wrestles with that, I know instantly they actually don't understand the gospel. Because the gospel is not, man, fix yourself, clean yourself up, do all the stuff you need to so you'll make yourself pleasing to God and you can have a relationship with him. No, it's the opposite. It's that you're broken. You can't do anything right. You go to God to get cleaned up. You don't get cleaned up to go to God, right? So, so this is the thing. That's why many people are like, man, do I have to stop, uh, give, it, give it whatever you think is a heinous sin? Do I have to stop doing that in order to be followers of Jesus? No. I'm not saying that you keep living that way, but I'm saying just come to Jesus. What happens in the process of sanctification and walking with Jesus and the Spirit of God now indwelling you is he brings to light by the law, whether the Old Testament law or the law of Christ in the New Testament, man, in all of it he brings to light all of the broken things you're doing, how you're unable to carry them out, and you need Jesus, not just in Salvation Day, what people described over here, but you need Jesus every day. You need the gospel every day because I am unable to carry out the law. I need Christ. And I'll tell you what, the next couple of verses are, are, are super confusing. Not only in English, but also in the Greek. They don't get easier there. You can read them. You won't understand them there either. But I think it's Paul's way of capturing the real confusion, if not schizophrenia, of living under sin, that there's this back and forthness, man, and maybe you've wrestled with it before. You ever wondered uh, why humanity is so confused all the time? Maybe more than ever in these days, we're like, what is going on? You ever are confused, man, why are simple things difficult within the Christian life? Like, can I just ask you, like, how easy is it for you to read your Bible? It's a simple thing. Take time every day, open up the Word of God, and read it. Why are simple things so hard? Why is it that people that seem like they love each other and are happy together end up having terrible marriages? Why does that happen? Why is it that our good people who are part of a company, everybody seems like they're great people, but some form, somehow in the middle of all of that, there's this toxic culture that gets brought to life there? This is why, what the Apostle Paul is getting at here. This, this is why, look what he says in verse 14, is what sin does to us. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh and under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. And I'll just tell you right now, just let this wash over you, be an encouragement to you, because, man, if you don't find yourself here, I don't know where you are. But even the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest believers ever to walk the earth, this is what he says, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. 
So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Hello? Anybody else? For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not, I do not want is what I keep on doing. It's a mouthful. i got to really pay attention to try to read it well. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. It's just, he's painting this picture of this split with him, almost this civil war within him between his flesh and his spirit and what he wants to do and he's not doing it. He's going back and forth, back and forth. He, he's saying, man, the, the, the law is there and it shows me what I should do, which is actually good. But what's, what's a problem is, on the other hand, he knows that he's still sinful until he sees Christ face to face. And he's trying to live in this in-between, and there's this deep struggle that he keeps going back and forth. The things that I want to do, I'm not doing sometimes, and the things that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Anyone else, can you relate? I Hopefully, you, you can. I, I relate all the time that there's a struggle, and that's what I'm saying. I want you to leave here encouraged, but also with the power to walk forward, to, to bring it to Christ, to actually walk with him in newness of life. It's amazing, Right? If you think about just illustrations, it's amazing. You think about it, you're like, man, people in this room know if you're married, if you're covenanted to someone else, it's not okay, even subtly, to, to flirt with coworkers. But you still do. You know in this room that porn not only dehumanizes people, but it will ruin your soul and your marriage. But people still do it. We know that no matter how many people like me here on earth and how I change or try to alter my appearance to get the attention of either my husband, some other person, or my wife, it will never give me satisfaction, but I keep chasing after it. Why? Someone who struggles with alcoholism, they know that they'll never fully be satisfied and that it will never wash away whatever they're trying to forget. But why do we keep going back to it? And you can go from thing to thing to thing to thing. What is that? I'll tell you what it is. It's the universal principle that the law cannot overcome the flesh. It is the universal principle that, man, the law, no matter how messed up we are, will never make us good. Just like, man, people, while we know there's people across the, the, the globe that know embezzlement and murder and racism and rape and fraud, all those things are not good, but yet, for some reason, in all of it, they continue to do it. Well, look what Paul closes with in verse 21. He says this, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. It's a good thing. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and, making, and taking me or making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He's further describing this war that is going on within him. There's two principles at work within one person, his inner being that delights in the law of God, but also his members, his body, how he functions, have sin working in them to make him captive to the law 
of sin. That's why I feel it's so refreshing. The last verse in verse 25, look with me what it says. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And then he goes on and look in verse, um, sorry, the verse right before this is what I meant in verse 24. He says this, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Some of the most authentic words in Scripture. Honest, like, man, oh, wretched man that I am, because the law is bringing him to a place, like I said, that is shining a light on his brokenness and his sin, and he's in that place where he's saying, man, oh, wretched man that I am. I am completely depraved. I am completely broken. Who will deliver me? Because I know that it can't come from me. That right there is the point of the law, to get you to a place to say, a wretched man that I am. I am broken and sinful, and there is no way that I can overcome this. Who will deliver me? And the answer today is Jesus. That's why the gospel is so beautiful, because the law brings us to this place where we're like, man, a wretched man that I am, woman that I am, person that I am. Because you know what? It's amazing. Paul realizes that the law can't deliver him. Paul was a Jew of Jews. He was the best. He looked before this to the law to save him, just like the Israelites did, and just like every religious person does by looking for deliverance in some creed or constitution or dogma to save them, and it will never happen. The results are always the same brokenness. So where is the deliverance? We already said it, Jesus, but where is it in our text? We'll look at verse 25. But it says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's it. There's no principle that can deliver you, only a person. No principle, no law will ever deliver you, only a person. That's why our big idea for today is where the law fails Christ prevails. Where the law fails, Christ prevails. Again, this is the point of the law, that it would bring us to a place where we see that we are a failure and we need Christ. And now I just want to call you to something. Based on all of that, trying to go through the weeds of what in the world is the Apostle Paul saying. Now, what do we do with that? Do you know what I, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, and I think maybe one of the most important, is the Sermon on the Mount. It's amazing. When you read the very beginning, I'm not going to read the entire Sermon on the Mount, but very, the very beginning of chapter 5 of Matthew, write it down, look at it later, it says this, that Jesus, seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began to teach, you know, uh, he opened his mouth, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, all of that, and it's the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember exactly where Moses got the law? On the mountain. So there's a geographical marker here in the text. These are not small things. These are actually legit things that Jesus is showing himself as a new Moses, and he's about to give himself, or he's about to give the law of Christ. He goes on to share the Sermon on the Mount, some of the most important texts in all of Scripture, even saying things like this, man, do you think that I have come to abolish the law? What have I been talking about? And the prophets. And he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. 
And then he shares this amazing text that's overwhelming because I will never be this. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Can I tell you, that's overwhelming because you will never be better at carrying out the law than the, than the, the Pharisees. So what is he saying? Well, I'll tell you, the, the whole point of the whole Sermon on the Mount is not doing better. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is showing us that God doesn't just want our moral, moralistic deism or our moral modification that I put more lists of things that I shouldn't do and try to set up more boundaries like the Pharisees do. What he's saying is he wants our hearts. He's saying, I don't just want your hands and all of the law. I came to fulfill the law. And what I'm after is your heart, the circumcision of your heart. So he goes on to say these crazy things like, man, uh, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, it's not just enough to change the exterior that you actually, you flirted with your, with your coworker at work, but you didn't actually commit the act of adultery. He says, in your heart. If you've committed adultery, if you've lusted after a woman, you've already broken the law. You see, Jesus takes it a step further for us because he's not just about your moral modification. We don't need any more sermons about three things you can do to, to help you change the way you live. What we need more preaching about is how are you going to bring your brokenness to the foot of the cross so that Jesus can do a radical work in your heart and your soul so that you might be changed within and it will come out in the way that you live every single day. This is, this is what he's getting at. He's saying, man, where is your heart? What does that look like? There's no wonder when we get to Romans 12, he says, man, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does that happen? Day by day, I do the hard work of being with Jesus. Day by day, I do the hard work of bringing my faults to Jesus and allowing the word of God, the I don't have time to get into it, but the word I've sh shared with you there before in Romans is meta the word we get metamorphosis, where a, a, a rotten caterpillar you feel like stepping on on the sidewalk becomes a beautiful butterfly. And that's what the, the, the transformation looks like. So, so what is that for you? Can I tell you, stop trying to install more principles and performances that you might be more like Jesus and start bringing your stuff to Jesus. Maybe just instead of trying to stop doing the thing you hate and you want to change, bringing it to Christ. How much have you prayed about it, gone before the Lord about it, invited other people to go before the Lord with you about it, that you've spent time with the Lord day in and down, praying, fasting, seeking, Lord, will you change this in me because I can't do it. You want my heart. You don't just want my hand. What does that look like for you? Does that even look like that? Is that a process that you go with? We have to do more heart work and not as much hand work that like, man, I'm just going to, yeah, Jim told me to do this, so I'm going to go home and I'm going to put some blockers on my computer or whatever it is. Can I tell you? That will not help you with the brokenness in your mind. What will help you with the brokenness in your mind is a renewed heart by the Spirit of God. And I can't tell you, do X plus Y and it will equal Z. No, I can tell you that only Jesus can do it through the power of the gospel. And man, today, if you're here or you're under the sound of my voice online, and man, you're a person that you've, 
Your whole life you've been struggling with a civil war within, trying to please God by doing better, but you can't seem to do better. Can I tell you, today your job is just to run to Jesus. Like you heard, you feel Jesus calling you from the testimony of a young girl, run to Jesus. Lay yourself down. Accept what he did for you on the cross. Give up your life to him. Believe in him. Place your faith in him. And in that moment, he'll change your heart. You won't be perfect, I promise. You'll rest like the Apostle Paul for the rest of your life. But you'll be covered. No longer having to perform, you will get the person of Jesus Christ. And for all of us, man, it's been a heavy number of weeks. For a long number of weeks, we've been talking a lot about sin and changing and confessing and repenting that sin. And maybe you've been trying to do that over the last number of weeks, and it just isn't seem to, it doesn't seem to work, and you're, you're trying to put in place these certain things. Can I tell you, maybe for a moment, it's, it's stopping trying to do more behavior things and modifying the way that you're living. For a moment, that will come. For a moment, maybe you haven't done the hardest work, which is revealing your heart to the Lord, laying it down before the Lord, and begging the Lord to do a work in your heart and your soul. And that's not a one-time journey. That's a daily journey. That's a weekly journey. That's a lifelong journey of going before the Lord vulnerably because he already sees every part of your heart and laying it before the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm sick of this. I hate this. I don't want this, Lord. But you have to do this work in me because I can't do it. The law has shown me. I'm unable to do it on my own. I need you, Jesus. Maybe today that looks like you coming down front as we are about to proclaim my sin, man, it is a lot, but your mercy is more and it's better. So maybe today for you, it might just mean I need to put a stake in the ground and going home and calling Jim or Alex isn't good enough today. I need to walk down front and lay before the Lord. Not maybe on the ground, but maybe and say, Lord, this is my place. I just want to, I need to talk to Alex. I need to talk to Jim. I need to talk to someone today because, man, I'm tired of trying to do the moral behavior modification. It's not working. I need a heart change, and I'm going to the Lord for that. Let's, let's pray together. God, thank you for our time of your word that while things seem many times when we're first reading them, like the book of Romans, what an overwhelmingly amazing book that you've been given, we've been given as a gift, God. Sometimes it's hard to read. Sometimes it's hard to understand what the apostle. Thank you for good people that spend their life's work of, of untangling that for us that we might see. Lord, today, while we're experiencing and understanding what your word says, take us from this place. Saying, I don't want to try to do more stuff to change how I'm living. God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that down the road, but I need you to change my heart. I need you to turn my heart of rock and stone into flesh again. God, I haven't spent any time with you in months. For someone in this room or under the sound of my voice, God, I haven't spent any time with you maybe for years. Today, Lord, that has to change because I've been, well, I don't believe it, I've been trying to change my life on my own and I can't do it. Spirit of God, do a work in our hearts as you do with me all the time, when you do with each of us, as you call young girls, and it's irresistible. Today, God, may you have an irresistible call over the people of God in this room and online that they would lay their hearts bare before you, asking you to know amazing work in their hearts and their souls. Thank you for the truth of the song. Our sin is great, but your mercy 
is more. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.